Okay, here we go. Hi there on the internet. December the 9th, 2018. Lecture discussion number 47 on the book of Joel. Uh, really fast for an update here. Thursday, I read uh, in the local um, paper, I guess we could call it a paper, it hardly is anymore, but it uh, now is mostly just online, that Anchorage has had 2,888 aftershocks since the uh, November 30th earthquake, so 2,888. And the quick math for those of you who have phones is 412 a day as of Thursday. We're, I'm sorry? Have you felt 2,000? I'm sure that it's... It, we'll talk about that in just a second. Don't get ahead of the lecturer. That's not... All the jokes are over here. Now I've got to get rid of half of them. Anyway, the point is, that says Thursday, so I don't... There's no available current total. Somebody said to me today that we've had at least a half dozen that have exceeded 5.0 the, the, since the, the, the one that was 7 or better. Um, that's astonishing, frankly. And that causes you to ask the biblical question. The biblical question is, is that there's going to be earthquakes as a sign of the end of the times. What's the obvious biblical question? How many? We've had 412 aftershocks a day since that earthquake hit. Imagine if that happens every single day, everywhere, all over the world at the same time. What would happen? They don't necessarily have to be large, as as uh, um, people have said. These small ones are causing a great impact. What if they never stop? How big of a sign is this, is what I'm asking. What is God trying to tell us about this physical reality? He cursed it, as we talked last week. He, he, he did not curse Adam. He cursed the earth. Why did he do it? And how many earthquakes is the amount that he wants for his sign of the earthquakes? Would we recognize that if the, if the earth never stopped shaking, that that would be God doing what he said he would do? So needless to say, the earthquake aftershock as it is for us is, be, is, uh, is fatiguing and it's taking its toll. You can only jump out of bed, run for the safe spot and get in your fetal position and so many times. Imagine, it, it just as you can imagine, the 412 that we're getting every day exceeds the limit of most Alaskans. Now I should say this to the internet. We don't feel those. That is, it takes uh, highly sophisticated seismic equipment to, to measure that. But we are feeling uh, a great many of them. Right now, we're so tired of it, we're only moving if they're a 4.0 and above. That's what's happening. And, and, it, and, and even at 4.0, our movement is tepid, is languid. We had a 5.0 this morning at, uh, what was it, 1030? We all moved on the 5.0. It still motivates us, but it's just barely the, the bare majority. And we still, nonetheless, uh, greet the 5.0s with uh, skeptically disrespect. The 3.0s, we, we mock and boo the 3.0s. No, that's what we're doing. 
<laughs> morbid humor has seized the day, hasn't it? And no one is surprised that uh, our humor has gone that direction. It is the Anchorage default position, after all. On a quick, more personal note, I have developed, and some of you know this already, a, a vitreous detachment in my right eye now. Uh, yay. Um, big cheer for the accelerating aging process. Already, one, two, three, we. So far, the obstruction occupies only about 40% of the eye, um, making it difficult to read. It's really hard for me to read now. The good news is that it's shaped like a baby's face. I can look at it and I can see it. And it's a lot of times I think I have my glasses on and they're not on because I see this outside ring. So I'm doing this all the time, trying to take my glasses off, much to the amusement of everyone around me. Um, but it's difficult to re- read the good news. As I said, it's shaped like a baby's face. Uh, think the angry Gerber baby. Uh, um, so I have a quasi-imaginary friend now to keep me company. I feel like Jimmy Stewart. That's a joke that only old people laugh at. So look around. <laughs> More good news, sort of. The doctor told me that the floating baby face blob thing might just might fall. So Isaac Newton, I'm counting on him. Gravity is my hope. Uh, she said that it might go below the line of sight in six months. So me and the baby are going to have this dance for a long time. In the meantime, the right eye is mostly useless. Um, I, if I close the left eye, it's like looking through really dirty glass that has dirt and sand all over it. Marie, you're nodding your head like you know what this looks like. Yeah, Marie laughed at me last week. <laughs> oh, just laughed at the, the laugh because you knew what I was talking about. I suspect otherwise, but nonetheless, I'm. <laughs> I'm going to be laughing at the rest of you when it happens to you. It is a typical function of being an elderly person, in case you were wondering if I qualified. (sighs) I need an eye patch to read or to write now, or I have to close the eye, which eventually gets tiresome. And I do have an eye patch, and eye patches are cool. Everybody knows that. So as this rapidly aging senior, I do delight now, as you know. I, I'd talk all the time about it. I'd say pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man, right? Well, that's no longer just a funny joke. That's a accurate description now. Patching everything. But as I said, as a rapidly aging senior, I, no one wants to hear this stuff, but I like to talk about it now. It goes with being, especially strangers telling them about my medical conditions, my maladies. Well, it's, uh, the stereotype is not a stereotype. Next week I'll come in and we'll talk about uh, bowel movements or something. <laughs> you can cut that out of the tape, can't you? Yeah, I'm sure you can. Okay, anyway, we have a list to consider today. This is, this is the resurrection of Lazarus. It's not all of it. It's just a very partial list. Hardly a list at all. 
Not comprehensive for sure. And, and Lazarus is the seventh sign of the book of John. If I get one thing through to you that you have to recognize when you read the book of John, and you must read it because it is the definitive work of the, the Apostle John proving the deity of Christ, you must locate those seven signs. You can buy a commentary where they'll list them for you, but hardly ever does anyone go into them extensively. They're a tremendous study. They're incredibly important. John has put them there to prove to you who Christ truly is. The world does not know who Christ is today. The church does not know. They have a caricature of him. They are completely misinformed as to who Jesus Christ really is. And that's one of the huge problems in the church. So this is the seventh sign of the seven signs of the book of John. It is the resurrection of Lazarus. This is the list of it, kind of. It's got Martha and Mary, the sign of Jonah, because Lazarus is a, the first sign of Jonah. Christ is the second. The two witnesses are the third signs of Jonah given to the nation of Israel. Lazarus being the first. Keep in mind, Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived only about two two miles from the temple of Jerusalem. So everyone knew. Along with that is the grave clothes that Christ puts in the folded face cloth, the Psalm 16:10 verse that no one knew. Adam is part of this. Christ is the angel of the Lord. He, he comes and moves his own stone. Nicodemus is involved here, critically involved. Peter and John, they are used by John uses himself and Peter to explain the nation of Israel. Mary and John, the mother of of Christ, and John the Apostle, the third saint of Christ from the cross. That's just a few of the things on the list. And some of those aren't even on the list because I don't have enough room to put them on the list. But uh, So this is what we're going to try to do today. But before we do that, return to the dreaded list, as you have come to call it, and will come to call it even more so as we try to work our way through it. i got a quick diversion that fits in today. Uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes, specifically Ecclesiastes 9. Um, if I wanted to focus even more so, it would be Ecclesiastes 9, 3 through 8. You might remember it as being the place where you find this phrase. It is better to be a living dog than a dead lion. One of the most profound things Solomon and the Holy Spirit with Solomon, inspiring Solomon, wrote. He goes on to say, but the dead know nothing. The memory of them is forgotten. The reason I'm covering this today is because Supper Dave, if he truly exists, probably doesn't. Just saying. Math is bad. Uh, but someone I'm hoping, is am I right, uh, if Dave, is it Mary from Seattle? Did you have this conversation with or is it Mary from Washington? Anyway, I, I, we have a Mary somewhere either in Washington or Seattle, which is kind of the same thing. Uh, Seattle? Okay, so I want her to know who she was, just in case she didn't think we did. I think I proved that we have no idea. Hi, Mary. Often these passages that she uh, brought to Supper Day um, are misinterpreted by the someones who misinterpret. 
to prove that our memories will be erased by God in the eternal state. Does that make sense to you? Did I say that well enough? There is a position out there that says that in order for God to have a sinless environment, in order for God to have us uh, not despairing over those who are lost, he must erase our memories. That is a very common position. And it comes out of Ecclesiastes 9, and apparently Mary from either Seattle, Washington, or Washington uh, itself uh, has come across that, if, I'm, if I have that right. Is that true? How am I doing? Okay, good. And, of course, Ecclesiastes 9 does not say that. That is a... A vacuous interpretive assessment of it. Now, many of you will likely remember that I have covered Ecclesiastes 9 in the recent past. By many, I mean maybe nobody. By recent, I mean, what, 10, 15 years ago? So hardly anybody here did that. And I don't even remember when I did it. How is it possible that any of you would remember? So effectively, never mind. It is better to be a living dog than a dead lion. That's a great truth, as I said, maybe the most profound truth that uh, is in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon is extraordinary. As you know, he asked for wisdom and was given wisdom. So how smart is he? He's smarter than us. So let's read it really fast. Verse 3, we'll start verse 3, see how far we go. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Pay attention to under the sun. He says under the sun over and over and over again. Is he... Has he got some kind of Tourette's problem? No, he's pounding it in. He's relentlessly saying, under the sun. Why is he doing that? This is an evil and all that is done under the sun. The one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Sounds like he's talking about the United States, isn't it? Well, he's talking about humanity. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Do you see the extinguishment, the annihilationism that will creep in there if you don't understand what Solomon is saying? For they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And obviously the living dog dead lion reference is explained further by verse 5. If you don't uh, understand, uh, and 6, if you don't understand what it means, just keep reading through the rest of the text. It is better to be a living dog because living dogs still have something. What do they have? They have time. Yes, you get an A. (laughs) They have time. In other words, dead lions have lost their time. The time for the dead lions has run out and thus the obvious conclusion The context is under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, which is the clock established by God. The sun is the clock. It's a time-based 
structure at Genesis 1.16. On the fourth day, the sun and the moon. That's what he's doing. It's a countdown clock. He's keeping track of time so that we can keep track of time. He doesn't need to know what time it is. He knows. But he's keeping, he's put a system in place so that we will know what time it is. Under the sun is Solomon's phrase for the physical reality. If you are under the sun, where are you? You're on the earth, subject to the sun. So you're in the physical reality. It's his way of saying space and time, in case you think that that was this, that Minkowski came up with that. It's the earth habitat. The earth is under the sun. The earth is therefore constrained by time. The sun cannot be dissected, separated away uh, from the fact that it is a time Reference. All those who are under the sun are restricted by time. Again, the sun is primarily a device put in place by God to teach us about the meanings of time. Time has many meanings. God wants you to know them. In this case, in all cases, um, we're going to, this is this one actually. It's His time, His timing that He wants you to know about. When you recognize the reasons for time uh, and who it's for, then great truths are available to you. He is the one that created it and instituted time. And he has absolute authority over it, which proves, therefore, that he is infinite and you're not. I've said many times, I hope, that infinity must come from infinity. I've called the sun and the moon the faces of the clock countdown clock. There's more to it than just the sun and the moon. They are the faces of it. That's how we read it. Think of it as the hands. And God has placed it, them, to be seen, to reckon time. And he did it for angels and men. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is filled Ecclesiastes with the subject of time. If you don't think that's the case, read Ecclesiastes 3 right now. He buries you in time references in Ecclesiastes and sun and moon, sun and moon, sun and moon. So you begin Ecclesiastes 9 with the understanding that time undergirds these passages. Notice uh, really fast Ecclesiastes 9, 11 and 12. I'll do that. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to men of understanding nor favor to men of skill but time and chance happen to them all for man does not know his time like fish taken in a cruel net like birds caught in a snare so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it's suddenly falls upon them. Time and chance. Man does not know his time. Snared in an evil time. All of that to tell you that Solomon is trying to give you the wisdom that he has about time and the physical reality. Solomon, guided by the Holy Spirit, fills his writing with references to time. Constantly repeating under the sun. Under the sun. Why does he do it? 
obviously attempting to resolve the meanings of Ecclesiastes requires a functional definition of under the sun. If you don't have one, not going to figure it out. If that's not present, that understanding the definitions that are there, you're going to end up with nonsensical conclusions. They're inevitable when you approach it so badly. And such is the one that uh, asserts that Ecclesiastes 9.5 is the evidence of erasures of memory, of erasure of, mem- erasure of memories, the annihilation of the wicked. Let me read it again. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and for the memory of them is forgotten. <coughs> Ecclesiastes does not teach that. Let's just take it a little bit at a time. Let's try first. Living dog. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. How does God define living? You have to have God's definition of living, not yours. God's definition. Dead lion. Same question. How does God define dead? The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. About what? Does it mean they know nothing? Do they not know nothing about something? Does that make sense? The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. The living know, the dead do not know. To repeat, how does God define living and dead? What distinguishes between the living and dead? That's a intentionally, purposely, poorly worded question from the religious professional. Let me read it to you again. How does God define living and dead? What distinguishes between the living and dead? What is the wrong word? Let me correct it. Who? On the basis... On what basis is life separated from death? The answer is who? Why is the living dog living? What makes the living dog live? Bad question. Purposely, intentionally worded wrong for the benefit of all who are listening. Both of you. I'll get and I'll knock at least one of you out before long here. What? Why is the living dog living? Why is the living dog joined to the living? What makes the living dog alive? Who makes the living dog alive? Conversely, why is the dead lion dead? What causes the dead lion to be dead as God defines death? What causes the living dog to be living as God defines living? Basic logic progression now. The dead lion knows nothing about life or death. Who is life? Dead lions therefore know nothing about who? Christ. The dead lions have no more reward. They've got their reward. Where did they get their reward? You know the scriptures, don't you? They got their earthly reward. Their time on earth is ended. So what has happened to their reward? It's ended. The earthly reward, Matthew 6, 2, 6, 5, 6, 16, has been given to them, has been granted. They have their reward. No more reward will be given. The great rewards will be bestowed on the living dogs. 
Luke 6.23, 6.35. But the memory of the dead lions under the sun is what? Forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, their envy has perished with them. I can prove that really fast. I'll name a dead lion. I I could pick anybody, but let's just go for it. And I don't know if they're really a dead lion or not because I didn't meet them. But let's just make some assumptions. Genghis Khan. Dead lion? What's he look like? Who'd he talk to? What'd he say? We know nothing about Genghis Khan. Very, very little. You can historically try to put pieces together. But actually knowing about Genghis Khan, he's forgotten. Pick anybody. You pick the recent ones. Go ask a millennial about American history. Forgotten. So it, they are they are not erased individually, but they have perished from under the sun, not extinguished, not annihilated, perished. How does God define perish? Nevermore will the dead lions share in anything done under the sun. In the end, dead lions perish in the lake of fire. That's what perish means to God. They await their time of judgment, their trial, which is the day of the Lord. Second Peter 3, 10 and 12 and Joel chapter 2 and Revelation 20, 11, 21, 8, all the way from 2011 through 21, 8. That is the day of the Lord. Those verses are critically important. If anyone ever asks you what you are, you can say to them, if you're a saved person, and I, I, I see none that are not. If someone ever asks you, you tell them, I am a living dog. Remember my joke? I wanted to, I wanted to coach basketball for years up here. I've always wanted a team called the living dogs. Or the sheep. Bah. R-E-R-E-B-R-E-B-O-U-N-D. Do you know how many times I've heard that? Screamed in my ear. I wanted to hear, Bah, we're the sheep. Beware the sheep, Bah. I've used that joke for years. But the internet, no one knows it. So pretend it's funny for the sake of others. Thank you. In case you were wondering how I was going to feather Ecclesiastes 9 back into Joel, I just did it here. Because to perish is to uh, perish at the day of the Lord. Don't try that yourselves. i got great skills here. Uh, And when you talk about living dogs, what do you end up doing? Where is the most prominent place dogs are mentioned in Scripture? You can go to dog vomit. But you also go where? Lazarus. The dogs are licking his soul or his sores. I have this sign of Lazarus is the sign of Lazarus and both of them are in it. Wouldn't you expect that? 
Again, don't try that by yourself. Okay, now we're going to go on to this list. We left off at lecture 46 with questions about the rejoicing of God and the sorrow of God, gladness and weeping. Uh, does this gentleman need some assistance of any kind? Oh, well, congratulations, sir. You got through the earthquake and you got everything out of here. and It does. It looks very nice. I haven't made fun of it all night. So that's a, that's a tribute to you. We talked about why Christ says, I am glad for your sake, as he's going to resurrect Lazarus. So that is the rejoicing of God. He also, Jesus weeps during the resurrection of Lazarus. That is the sadness or the sorrow of God. So I have the man of sorrows here. Gladness and weeping. Rejoicing and sadness. In conjunction with these was the definition of there, because he also says, I'm glad I was not there. And we asked, where is there? Is there actually a there? Who can know the location of anything, frankly? Think about that. One of the fundamentals of quantum mechanics is that the momentum and the position of a particle cannot be determined. There's an uncertainty. So is this now going to devolve into a five-hour lecture on Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? That's the cornerstone of quantum mechanics. When Christ says, I'm glad I was not there, where's there? How can he not be there? Was the question. You can only hope for quantum mechanics today. On the, also on the table from last Sunday is God's definition of nothing. Did God make nothing? Is nothing something? Why did Christ, God in the flesh, the invisible God made manifest, who comes, he descends and ascends, John 3, Nicodemus, Proverbs 30, Matthew 12. Why did God say, I was not there? And it would be wise to explain more fully about what all of that's about, this descending and ascending. Keep in mind, more fully is a compound relative term. Um, more is relative and fully is relative and more fully, therefore, is a relative, relative term. My favorite kind of relative term. This is where I drink soda. Jesus Christ, God Almighty himself, stands physically, Matthew 12, before the nation of Israel. The religious leaders, God is physically before his nation. It's a profound event. Israel can see God. Think about the Old Testament. Did they see God? They saw the pillar of cloud. They saw a shape of a man. Ezekiel 1. So Christ is in the pillar of cloud on the throne. Ezekiel 1. They went up the mountain. They saw his feet. Did they see the face of God? Now God standing physically before his nation, the religious leaders. And the the religious leaders can physically see the invisible God made visible. The unseen is seen. The infinite God of creation has come to Israel as the God-man, Jesus Christ, Acts 2.32, no comma. If your Bible has a comma between Jesus and God, or if God is not capitalized in Acts 2.32, fix it. 
you do not have one that is that is in any way accurate there. So here's Jesus God, no comma, and he has cast out the demon from the deaf mute. He's amazed the Jewish people when he did that because they knew that was a messianic sign. And so they screamed. They asked of the Pharisees, is this the son of David? The religious rulers, as you know, reject Christ declaring him to be evil or to be Satan, which is the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. God himself physically before his nation, presenting himself as their king Messiah, refused on the basis that he is evil, the author of evil, which is, of course, as you know, Genesis 3. I throw that in there because Genesis 3 is the first Adam. Christ is the last Adam, the second federal head. They are inherently connected. Anyway, the point being, yea, a point. God, the infinite one, who is everywhere at the same time, he's omnipresent, who said, I'm glad I wasn't there. God is glad and he wasn't there. Two incredibly complex things that he said. He's uncontained by time and matter or space. Is appearing as if he has a location in front of the nation of Israel. He holds them accountable for him having a location in front of him. And that's a great mystery. It is the greatest of mysteries, 1 Timothy 3.16. Last week I suggested that Matthew 12, 1 Timothy 3.16, brings clarity to John 11.15. So let me read John 11.15. I've referenced it. A lot here, just recently, just lately, just a second ago. Jesus said to them plainly, this is God in the flesh. Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. And that's an amazing mystery. How can God not be there? It is impossible for God not to be there. Uh, Read this again to you, Colossians 1.15. Can't read this enough. He is the image of the invisible God. How big is he? And the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In other words, he is outside of time. And in him all things consist. Time is inside him, as is all matter and all space. Everything visible, everything invisible. So nothing is something. In him all things consist. He was there. He says, I'm, I'm glad I was not there, but he's there. Why does he say, I'm glad I was not there? Why does he say, I'm glad? Why does he say, for your sakes, which is a Genesis 3.17 reference? He is there. There is no there unless he is there. And in him all things consist. All means call all. Obviously, there is now a distinction. 
He has descended. There is a distinction between his descended office and his ascended office. And that is how you solve this. You have to recognize that Christ has three offices, or if you wish, stages, or you could even call them phases. He is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15. He is the high priest, Hebrews 3, 1, 5, 6, and 5, 10. He is the king of kings, Revelation 17, 14, 19, 16. So he is the prophet, the high priest, and the king of kings. When he says, I was not there, he is in his prophet stage. Deuteronomy 18, 15 stage. He descends to save the world. The triune Godhead sends the Son. I've often said, why didn't the triune Godhead send the Father? They sent the Son. Could they have sent the Holy Spirit? Ultimately, they do, after the Son. Everyone sees this hierarchy in the triune Godhead. And there is no hierarchy. There is no subordination. They are all one. They are uh, the same. However, I'll get to that in a second. Christ says that he will perform as an obedient agent. Even though he is fully God. So, Christ descends to save the world. That's what he does. He is the saving one. The triune Godhead sends the Son. The Son comes as the saving prophet, the saver, the savior, the saving one. Man has been dead in death and sin for 4,000 years when he comes. Adam, uh, the federal head of, if you wish, the federal head of all mankind, of the entire world, Adam, mankind, has had Four days, Second Peter 3.8. What do I mean by that? A day is a thousand years. Adam, Adam, mankind has been dead for four days or four thousand years when Christ comes. If you want to look at it this way, if you prefer, Lazarus has been dead for four days, John 11.17. Adam and Lazarus are being compared by Christ. Both have been dead for four days. That's why Lazarus is dead for four days. Because Christ is making sure that when you see that four days, you attach him to Adam. After four days, Christ comes for Adam. After four days, Christ comes for Lazarus. When Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, descends, he does it after four days to save mankind from what? What is the condition of mankind? Let's back up a second. The sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to Christ, John eleven three. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice that order. Please notice it. It is not he who loves you is sick. It is he whom you love is sick. So when he heard, received the message... That Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place he was. Two thousand years. He's now 
constantly, I'll make this point a little bit later here. I'm getting ahead of myself. He's making sure that you're paying attention to these. He's, he's, he's making sure that you see Lazarus and, Christ, and Adam and him all the same. Notice that it is Christ who loves Lazarus. It is Christ who loves man. The direction is from God to us. If I got, if I, I am sickened by these churches that are constantly bragging and boasting about how they, how much they love God. I'm going to make a dot on the board. Let's assume that the board is how much God loves you. And I'm going to make a dot so that you can see how much you love God. Do you see the dot? It's, it's right there. Stop boasting about that. It is insolent, disrespectful. That's a little tiny thing in the resurrection of Lazarus. But it nonetheless is, a, is critically important. Also notice John eleven four. Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death. What does that mean? He got a message from Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha said, the one that you love is sick. And Christ says, sickness is not unto death. What do you now know? You now know that Christ knew that Lazarus was sick. He didn't need the message. Duh. He knows all things. But he tells you he didn't need the message. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. He is God. He is the glory of God. And he is going to take it, if you wish, you want to put it in this humanistic way. He's going to utilize the sickness of Lazarus to glorify himself. Why does he want to glorify himself? Thank you. I see you. Why does he want to glorify himself? Why doesn't he glorify Steve? Let's have glorify Steve Day bring money. Why doesn't he glorify us? Because that's sin. He's the only one that can be glorified. Nothing else can be glorified but him. It isn't arrogance or ego. It is by necessity. (sighs) The sickness of Adam was not sickness unto death. Does that make sense? The sickness of Lazarus was not sickness unto death. And the sickness of Lazarus was not sickness unto death. Did Adam die as God defines death? Did Lazarus die as God defines death? Neither one of them did. Were both of them dead? But they weren't dead. Does that make sense? Because I'm defining it correctly. They were dead, but they weren't dead. Not unto death as as God defines death means not unto the second death, which is the day of the Lord of Joel and Revelation 20, 11 through 21, 8. And hopefully you've become aware. I'm doing the best I can. I know it's not that great. 
you have become aware of the Adam-Lazarus relationship in the seventh sign of the Gospel of John. Christ comes for Adam after four days, comes for Lazarus after four days. He treats them the same. God descends to be glorified as the Savior of the sickened, fallen Adam-man or mankind. Christ comes to resurrect. He says this, doesn't he? Uh, after he says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Who is us when God says us? Let us go to man. The point being, yea, yet another point. Jesus Christ is speaking literally about Lazarus and Adam mankind simultaneously as only he can. You have two subjects in this sign. One of them is the actual literal Lazarus, but he represents as well, and and he is attached to Adam. He can do this. He can talk about Adam and Lazarus with the same words and have them apply to each one of them because he's not restricted by time, because he knows all things, he sees all things, and he's the great rememberer. He remembers all things. He waits, doesn't he? He delays two days, John 11, 5. 4,000 and 2,000 is 6,000. Wow, how good at math is this guy? I know that's what you were thinking. The prophet descends after 4,000 years. The prophet comes to Lazarus after he has been dead four days. The high priest then ascends. How long does the high priest ascend, the second phase? Two days, 2,000 years. So he's telling you, I am the prophet and I am the high priest. Right there. So he stayed two more days. He's been dead four days. I am the prophet and I am the high priest. Who comes after the two days? The king. To rule for how long? One day. It's a Passover pattern. And all sevens return to the uh, creation week. He hears the messages from Martha and Mary, doesn't he? What, what office is that? What's the high priest do? What's he doing for two days? Two thousand years. He's hearing petitions. And all of this is occurring underneath, if you will, within the resurrection of Lazarus. And what Christ says, you've got to evaluate it. You don't have to. I hope you will. You evaluate it carefully in order to properly understand all of the meanings there. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. He was there. Why does he say he wasn't there? Christ was in the garden with Adam, wasn't he? Was he there when Adam died? Some would say he wasn't there. He came and said, Adam, where are you? Of course, he knows where he is. But you see the same element there, don't you? The woman fell into death with Adam, or fell into death before Adam. Adam chose death, chose sin, but it was not unto the second death. Adam was not cursed. The ground was cursed. For your sake, absolutely, is a Genesis 3 reference. Then he goes on and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? How do you figure out what he means? What is he talking about? 
He's talking about Lazarus, but he's also talking about who? Adam. Are there not 12 hours in a day? God asks a question about the sun and the moon, about the separation of the light from the darkness. He is the light of the world, Genesis 1-3, John 11-9. He is the life that, um, he is the life creating light, John 8-12. And he says, if the light is in you, in John 9, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if, he, if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So if the light is in you, what are you? You are alive. You are a what? A living dog. That's what you are. But if you walk in the dark, that's death as God defines death. Because the light is not in you then you are a dead lion. The disciples were certain that Christ could be killed by the Pharisee. What do we always say? The disciples were positive that Christ could be killed by the Pharisees. And that is embarrassingly stupid. Not that I would be any better, nor would you. But I have this. I know He's telling them he is the light of life from Genesis because that's where the sun and the moon, the 12 hours, the dark from the light. I am the light of life. I am the life creating light. He returns them to Genesis 1-3 because they say to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews thought, sought to stone you and you are going to go there again. And he says, are there not 12 hours in a day? Because they're saying, if you go there again, what's going to happen to you? They're going to kill you. And he goes, I am the light of life at Genesis 1. You know all this life that you see? I'm the light that makes life. That's what he tells them. Did they get it? No. What's he talking about? 12 hours in a day? I don't know. What's that? He's saying that uh, how can the light of life die? Who can kill the prince of life? Acts 3.15. He's called the prince of life. Who can kill the prince of life? No one can take his life. He just finished telling them that in John chapter 10. He's God. John 10.17 and 18. He says, I I must lay my life down so that I can take it up again. No one can take it from me, he says. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Obviously, no one believed it. He's got a whole bunch of people here whom he loves, who are around him all the time. No one believes that he is the light of life or the resurrection and the life. And clearly, the disciples did not comprehend the fullness, the totality of the person that is Christ. He is the light that created all life in Genesis 1. How do you kill the light of life? How can you stone the light of life to death? How can little tiny Pharisees kill infinite God? That's what he's telling. I mentioned Acts 3.15, the prince of life. The word there for prince actually means originator. The one who begins all life. Christ is the one who begins life. Who begat life. John 1.3. Life must come from life. And the, gen- the Pharisees... They had this idea that they could kill the one who is life itself. And he says, 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? And he's revealing who he is with that. And he's also discussing what else? The clock. Time. Why does God try to get us to understand time? And how many of us understand it? He just keeps pounding it over and over and over and over. And over and over and over again we go like this. And we don't understand it. Don't even discuss it. But here it is again. Seventh sign, the sign of Lazarus. Which is, when he's revealing that he is the light of life, that is why he is glad that Lazarus is dead. The Prince of Life, uh, Arthur W. Pink makes a great point um, in one of his books. I wish I could remember which one. I wrote it down years ago, and it's in uh, my other Bible that is a replica of this, but just much, much older and filled with notes. And I read it constantly to make sure that I remember what I once thought. But I wrote it in there, and Arthur Pink said that there is no evidence that anyone died in the presence of Christ. So had he been there, physically there, then then there is no death. I often wondered, did anything ever die? What is it like to be standing around the Prince of Life? The originator of life. That. I thought it. That explains the. The. uh, The memorial sacrifices. In the millennium. I have Christ on the throne. And there are animal sacrifices. Uh, Israel does them as a memoriam. Like we do communion. To memorialize the sacrifice that was made for us, the picture of Christ that they are. I have the I have the Prince of Life there. What happens to the animals if nothing can die around him? That's just for fun. But he is glad that Lazarus is dead for their sakes. That he was not there because he is now going to reveal himself to those whom he loves. They will know the truth. They will know him. They will believe and they will live as he defines life. He will lose none. So that's why he's glad. Not for the reasons we normally think. He is glad because every one of them will have a glimpse of who he really is. He's the light of life. He gives them that at the transfiguration, right? Do they ever get it? How long does it take them to get it? How long does it take us to get it? How many churches really know who Christ actually is? I'm going to tell you, I think it's barely 1%. So far, how many items have I covered on the list? You've been keeping track? Anybody notice? The answer is none. None on the list. That means I'm doing a really good job. Finally for today, finally being everyone's favorite cliffside word. 
Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live in Bethany. Christ says, John 11, let us, Genesis 1.26. When God says, let us, he says in Genesis let 1.26, let us make man in our image. Now, he has become like one of us. When God says us, boy, us means a lot of things to God. Let us go to Judea again. He doesn't say, let's go to Bethany. He says, let's go to Judea. What's Judea? Israel is divided essentially in in three positions or three aspects or three sections. Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, which is really Judah. And Judea is the Davidic kingdom where the king will rule. He's saying, let us. And now you see him, don't you? The king would say, let us go to the kingdom. The prophet came to save and resurrect. The high priest was sent the message and the and heard the message and the king is going to Judea. Christ is all three in one. He refers to himself as all three during the seventh sign of John. And he did it all so quickly. And John knew it. And that's why it's the seventh sign. Which we almost got through it, except I mentioned nothing about it. Next week.